Chapter 10 The Waiting Game My lawyer and I were invited back to participate in two more interviews on two separate days with the public prosecutor and Finansamt investigators. The inquiries were along the same lines as the previous day, so I felt confident answering the questions to the best of my ability based on my lived experiences running my business. My genuine concern was if I had established enough credibility to try and sway the perspective of the prosecutor to see things through a different lens. At inception of the second interview, my goal was to always attempt to answer my questions with the frame of reference that emphasized the perspective of not having criminal intentions and not having the same capabilities of information gathering like the investigators did. To give you an example, there was an electronic spreadsheet recovered from my laptop files, which seemed to be of great interest to the investigators. They asked me where the spreadsheet had originated from, and I said I had created it myself as a digital ledger to track some of the companies that I had done some business with. It felt like the investigators were not convinced with my answer. From my perspective, there was only one way to answer the question. Hold on to this thought of the spreadsheet for now. Put it in the back of your mind. This will resurface later in the story and provide an eye-opening paradigm shift in perspective. The three days of interviews produced a lot of dialogue. What felt like hundreds of questions, answers, and grounds to respectfully agree and disagree. The majority of the things we agreed upon appeared to be inconsequential like a green tax money was missing and that whoever took the money should pay for their crimes and that I was there to give truthful answers based on my perspective. On the flip side of the coin, almost everything we disagreed upon carried significant weight regarding the judgment of my case. I disagreed that I should testify against my ex because I didn't have anything else to say apart from what I was already sharing especially if I was being asked to support the prosecutor's position on tax fraud, which he framed as me knowing a crime was being committed and supported it in order to help my ex. I learned more about the prosecutor during this process. In my opinion, he was rigid and almost immovable in his perspective. I may have noticed some light sprinkles of empathy during the interviews, but they were quickly covered up with the you-had-to-have-known line of questioning. After the third day concluded and I was about to head back to prison, I had a quick check-in with my lawyer prior to departing. I attempted to get a pulse on what the next steps were going to be. My lawyer said he would continue to press the prosecutor to see what else could be done to accelerate my release from pretrial detention. At this point, and apart from being able to physically point out additional evidence from my confiscated laptop, I felt that I had done everything within my power to make my case of not being involved in a tax carousel. As I waited for further information and next steps, I had to maintain a healthy mindset and body. I continued to build rapport with the wardens and even the chief warden himself. He had an office located on the same floor as my cell was. 
He was an interesting character. He had lived in the U.S. and had also served on a U.S. Navy ship. He had framed photos of it hanging on his wall in his office. I went to his office once or twice. The best way for me to describe the chief warden, which was also a standing joke myself and the other American guy had during our conversations, is Tom Magnum from the popular 1980s American TV series Magnum P.I., starring Tom Selleck. I was about five months into pretrial detention and had built rapport with other people in pretrial detention and the wardens. I even learned of a gym and ping pong tables located in the basement of the prison. A handful of us from pretrial detention were permitted to utilize the gym once a week. That was a great stress release. At first, the other American guy wasn't very interested, but with a little bit of encouragement, we were hitting the weights and playing some ping pong to help move the time along. I also continued to write letters back and forth with my ex. Obviously, I was cautious to keep the letters to general topics, so more information would not be used against me. I shared about basketball, the rose bushes, volleyball, my improvement in chess, and everything else apart from the details of the case. After meeting the prosecutor and getting a pulse on him, I decided to continue to write letters with my ex to also demonstrate my confidence level. Occasionally, and intentionally, I packed a letter with descriptive details of whatever topic I was writing about, just to keep the prosecutor on his toes, since he and his team were screening the letters. Naturally, some would say that was not a wise move because I could potentially add more fuel to the fire for the prosecution team. Perhaps that was risky, but since the prosecutor had me playing the waiting game, I figured I would give him a run for his money. This started to become a waiting game indeed because after the last interview, things went quiet. Maybe they were investigating some more. In my world, I started to rack up new cellmate counts. The turnover rate picked up. It wasn't because of any conflict with me. It was simply that people's time to either get released or get moved out of pretrial detention kept happening. I met a lot of different personalities with different stories from different parts of Germany and other European countries. I started to come up with nicknames in my head. There was the chess master, bicycle guru, the Romanian, the talker, the diplomat, among a few others. At this point, I had been in pretrial detention going on five months, and I have to admit, constantly having to adjust to a different cellmate was mentally exhausting. I always had to stay half awake the first couple of nights with each new cellmate just to be sure that this new person didn't attempt anything unwanted. I believe at this point I had probably already seen at least five different cellmates. Apart from my new cellmates, there was also a lot of turnover on the cell block in general. Since I was in pretrial detention, the range of stay varied from two weeks to nine months. And I also learned from the professor that on occasion, 
the prosecutor's office could request for an extension on pretrial detention time beyond a year. The professor was speaking from experience. Naturally, this created some anxiety for me. This next part might be partially paranoia speaking. During one of the many personnel rotations, there was a guy who, when arriving on the cell block, took a particular interest in myself and the other American guy. He looked like he was in his early 30s, and the way he carried himself reminded me of someone that had either done some type of military or uniform service. The best way to describe it is, he came across to me as very structured, and he was also almost asking leading and pointed questions and pushed on the topic of why I was in pretrial detention. I remember during one of the three-hour group gatherings permitted by the wardens, we would rotate whose cell room the gatherings were held in. For this rotation, I was quote-unquote hosting about four other people. We did a variety of things like play board games, talk about what we will do when we get our freedom back, and we also speak about our charges. When I share details of my case, the responses from this new guy sounded like the prosecutor was speaking. They were pointed towards the you-should-have-known direction. That raised a mental flag for me. So even though I entertained his questions, I took the same position as I did with the prosecutor, which was also on the side of truth. What was interesting for me is after a few conversations and probing from him, and my responses leading to the same answers, he left the cell floor and I never saw him again. I feel he had one of the shortest stays that I remember. It was under two weeks. The Hollywood imagination part of my brain was telling me that this guy was sent by the prosecutor to get some sort of confession from me, which didn't go as planned, so he departed. Again, that could just be paranoia. I don't think I would ever be able to find out. There was another difficult experience I had while I was waiting for further action to be taken on my case. It was in the middle of the day. And I remember starting to read a book on the Rockefellers when the normalized sound of keys jingling in the hallway led to the cell door opening. I was informed I had a visitor, made my way through the normal security screening and waiting area process you are familiar with. When I entered the visitation room, it was the usual setup with one of the investigators, a translator, my cousin, his partner, and another person I did not expect, which was my mother. This was especially difficult for me to experience this because I had not seen my mother in person for a few years at this point because she lived in Ghana and I had been living and moving between the United States and Europe at that point. The last thing I wanted was for my mother to see me like this. I was supposed to be thriving. I can only imagine the anxiety she had when she first received the news of my detention and the things going through her mind when she put the resources together, took the risk of making the over 7,000 kilometers journey to see her son locked up in a German prison with serious charges being brought against him. That was not okay to put her through that. I felt angry, not at my mother. I felt 
angry at the situation of not being able to explain myself to her because it was not allowed. I felt angry that a decision made by a handful of people based on inaccurate information caused a negative ripple effect that was impacting other people across different continents. My family in the US had also received word of what had happened. I had to try hard to keep myself together. I learned that she was staying with my cousin and his partner. I knew she was in safe hands. I also learned that she had seen my lawyer and my lawyer had already basically briefed her. So my mom had a basic understanding of what was happening. I assured her that I was doing well and hoped the situation would not last much longer. The visit was over before we knew it. I hope my mom was able to find a little comfort. I think that was a turning point for me regarding visits. Every visit after that just made me feel angrier inside because I had become a burden on other people's lives for a situation that was out of my control. I rotated through another cellmate a few weeks after my mother's visit. I had lost track of the count at this point. Maybe he was number 11 or 12. Who knows? We called him El Boogie. He had a swag about him when he walked and had traveled to Germany by way of Sweden and was originally from Uganda. He was very easy to get along with and probably my favorite cellmate. The day started to blend together. While my liberty was taken away, the world kept spinning. I started to do more introspection as to what was important and what wasn't things that I could control versus things I could not, and what I was investing my energy in. So many things were happening outside the walls of the prison. So much time was being lost that I could not gain back. It's around October-November time frame, or maybe longer, and my lawyer sends word that he has been in talks with the prosecutor's office. He had been trying to convince the prosecutor that even if... The prosecutor felt that I was guilty of the crimes he was charging me with. My time spent in pretrial detention was nearing what was called the two-third rule, which meant that if I were to be sentenced for the crimes I'm being charged with, I would be expected to serve two-thirds of the time in prison and the other one-third released on probation based on good behavior. If this perspective was going to resonate with the prosecutor to get me released, so be it. So long as I wasn't expected to sign anything stating I accepted fault or guilt for my charges, I would rather take my chances in court. The temperature started to get colder. I also remember some nights when I couldn't sleep, and I would hear an insect, usually a roach, slide down from the window to our cell floor. I immediately sprang up into action to take care of it before it would settle. We didn't have any room for unwanted guests in our cell. The month of November comes to pass. Mostly same routine throughout. In December, I was informed that everything slowed down for the holidays. Time to bunker down. My cellmate and I had been 
making some purchases from the prison store to have a little extra to eat throughout because the prison food was horrible. We were also able to purchase an electronic hot water kettle. The design had the heating element on the base plate of the kettle. So this allowed us to remove the lid off the kettle and use it as a multi-purpose appliance. After some experimenting, we perfected how to make some spaghetti, tomato sauce with seasoning, corned beef and sliced cured salami sausages with the salami cut by using the edge of a pull-top lid tuna can. That was topped off with a slice of bread and butter. Michelin five stars. Merry Christmas. My cousin's partner helped with always making sure I had money on my prison books. This allowed me the luxury of making these extra supply purchases without needing to work for the prison. I was extremely grateful and it made a significant difference for me. Missing the holidays with family was not a new experience for me. I had already spent at least two years away due to deployments in the army during the holiday season. I tapped into that mindset when emotions started to run high. When the fireworks started to go off on New Year's Day, that marked my 235th day in pretrial detention. Welcome to 2013. After the New Year celebrations had settled, some movement started to happen again with communication. I received a phone call from my lawyer, and he was optimistic about getting a release date arranged. I was grateful and anxious about his news. Honestly, I had lowered my expectations in order not to get disappointed. At the top of the new year, the landscape of the people on the cell block had changed quite a bit. There were more faces that I did not recognize than there were faces I did. Here we go again. It was now January 25th, 2013, 255 days since my arrest. I was in the cell with my newest cellmate. El Boogie had already rotated out. He shared with me he was being relocated to a better facility that was equipped to provide care for his medical condition. I was really happy for him. I heard the now normal sound of keys in the distance. At this point, I was numb to the process, so I didn't pay much attention to it. When the cell door swung open, I was sitting at the table reading through some notes I had written. I looked towards the door and noticed a trolley with the warden and another person pushing it. This particular trolley was brought when it was time to assist a person to move out of the cell. I was used to this process due to the many cellmate rotations I had already experienced. I looked over to my cellmate to see if he had started to pack up his things. He was sitting up in his bed watching the television, but didn't seem to be coming down. The warden looked over to me, smiled, and said, Herr Boateng, this is for you. Pack your things. <laughs>